Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Hello and welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast where we go ad fontes to the fountain to the Word of God to be nourished and sustained by all that God is as he's revealed himself to us. My name is Tyler and we are continuing our study in the book of Job one verse at a time. Chunk by chunk, bit by bit, moment by moment. <clears throat> we are working through chapter 12 right now with Job's response to the latest accusation from his friends, this time Zophar. And Zophar has been the most severe, and his entire premise, as we established last time, was faulty. His entire assumption is just that, assumption. And Job is absolutely viscerating this concept by stating that, hey, I am wise. I do know these things. You're not saying anything new. What's more, God does things that you cannot explain to me. <clears throat> and continuing with that, we are picking up where we left off with verse 12. With the ancient is wisdom, and in length of days understanding. With him is wisdom and strength. He hath counsel and understanding. Behold, he breaketh down, and it cannot be built again. He shutteth up a man, and there can be no opening. Behold, he withholdeth the waters, and they dry up. Also he sendeth them out, and they overturn the earth. With him is strength and wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. <clears throat> so right off the bat, we have with the ancient is wisdom, which we talked a little bit about last week, that initially I had thought that was about wise people. That's something that sounds very reminiscent of the Proverbs. But the context, I think, here illuminates that this is actually about God. The most ancient thing there is, the most ancient being that there ever will be. So when we say, with the ancient is wisdom, first and foremost, we are talking about God. And in length of days, understanding <clears throat> to the God who is eternal. And so that is the premise, that is almost the preface, you might say, to the rest of the statement. He continues in verse 13, with him, the same ancient, with the ancient is wisdom, and with him is wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. Good so far. Behold, he breaketh down, and it cannot be built again. 
He shutteth up a man, and there can be no opening. And then we are presented with the beginning of a very difficult statement concerning the sovereignty of God, both in the triumphs and in the sorrows. So much so, that at the end of this section, Job says that the deceived and the deceiver are his. That even those who are being deceived and are those who are deceiving others are still held within his sovereignty. That that does not escape him, but still flows from the God who worketh all things. <clears throat> and to really grapple with this, we will, I think, have to take a step back and look at this text in light of several passages from several other books. Essentially, we're going to do a, a almost a panoramic of the, the story that God is telling, not just in Job, but the Bible as a whole. And so usually, I do not have notes when I, when I sit down to record, but I have with me a list of passages, Old and New Testament, as we try to synthesize this idea in light of the larger scope of the Bible. Because we're getting into language <coughs> that portrays God as being difficult. Not in the sense that he's made up of parts and he's like got all these gears and, and sprockets and things, but rather that God is, in the way he operates, is different than I. It's more complicated than I in some, not, not so much ontological sense, not in the sense of his existence, of his content, but in the way his character works. That God is not just one attribute, but God is somehow sovereign over those who would deceive others. <clears throat> that he is sovereign not just over the good things, but he is sovereign over Job's suffering, as evidenced by other things. It says, He withholdeth the waters, and they dry up. He's sovereign over the drought, but he also sendeth them out, and they overturn the earth. That he is sovereign over droughts, and even natural disasters. And that is, that is a hard one to swallow. And as we look at this text, it reminds me of Lamentations chapter 3 which is a lament of the prophet Jeremiah. <clears throat> it is not a happy book. This is not a book that you read at weddings, generally. I've not been to many weddings, but I've, of the ones I've been to, I have not heard a passage from Lamentations. I've heard passages from places like First John, Song of Solomon, places like that. But I've never heard somebody start off their wedding vows with, How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people, how she becomes as a widow. Yikes. And so that is how Jeremiah begins his lament of the destruction of the exile, of the manifestation of God's justice on Israel as it has gone astray. <clears throat> and we get to chapter 3. And chapter 3 is very personal. 
But picking up in verse 3 of chapter 3, Surely against me is he turned. He turneth his hand against me all the day. My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. He hath builded against me, and compassed me with gall and travail. He hath set me in dark places, as they that be dead of old. He hath hedged me about. This is very Jobin language. You remember in chapter 1 when Satan accused God of placing a hedge around Job. He hath hedged me about, that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. And when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. He hath enclosed my ways with hewn stone. He hath made my paths crooked. He was unto me as a bear lying in wait, and as a lion in secret places. He hath turned aside my ways and pulled me in pieces. He hath made me desolate. He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. He hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. Ouch. <clears throat> and there are times where people experience things that makes that passage in Lamentations very familiar. Um, both inside the church and outside it. But the language of Lamentations implies that God is opposed to Jeremiah. We've, he already establishes throughout this lament God's opposition to Israel for her rebellion. But here his focus shifts to Jeremiah. That he is that God is opposed to Jeremiah. And we have... <coughs> we're introduced to a, a harsh side of the way God works. And there are times where God is stands opposed. There are times where God gets in our way. Just as it says in Hosea 2, I will block her way with thorns. And so this is where I tend to bristle with some of the free will discussions that take place sometimes in Christianity. Because oftentimes we have this this tendency to portray God as being somehow disconnected from our wills. And we almost put our ability to choose and to will and to do as being equal to God. That he, I, There was one pastor I listened to growing up who famously said, God cannot override your unbelief. And I don't find that in the Old Testament. Places like Job and Ecclesiastes and Jonah, <coughs> Hosea, make it abundantly clear that there are times where my will stands opposed to God, and it is not God's will that bends. But Hosea tells us that when Gomer goes away, when Gomer goes astray and seeks after her former lovers, that God says, I will block her way with thorns. She will seek for her husband's for her lovers and shall not find them. And sometimes that is what it looks like. Sometimes God gets in our way. Whether that is him withholding the waters 
if that is the deceiver, <clears throat> if that is God withholding truth from people. Because God is also sovereign over the false teachers in our day. And that is something that I wrestle with sometimes. Why God is so patient. When I can give a laundry list of pastors that if, I, if it was up to me, I would have sm smote them off the face of the earth by now. There are churches that I would have, quote-unquote churches, that I would have obliterated by now because of the horrors that come out of those pulpits. And yet God is patient. That he, he endures that with a patience that I do not possess. Why? Because the deceived and the deceiver are his. Turn with me to the book of Obadiah. It's a book that we do not hear preached very often. It's a very short book. It's actually the shortest book in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and of the 12 books we call the Minor Prophets, Obadiah is directed to non-Jews. It is directed to the people of Edom, who are the descendants of Esau. Remember in Genesis, you had Jacob and you had Esau, two brothers. One was chosen to be the father of Israel, who would be God's chosen people in Canaan, who would go into the land and possess it. And the other was not. So much so, this is in Malachi, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And that, that's not Paul, that's not Tyler, that's not John Calvin saying that, that's God. How do we work through that? I don't, I, I can't give you a defense for, for that, I just know that God said it. But we come to Obadiah. Verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The, the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, What shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest upon the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. So despite the fact that <coughs> Edom has secured itself in the cleft of the rocks, and lives in a high and lofty place, they are not out of reach. God says, I will bring thee down. Because he's God. Because he has... He's not limited in his ability to do so. And so God, in that moment, stands opposed to Edom. And the book of Obadiah is largely a picture of his judgment upon Edom. And we have to reconcile that with the God who wrote first John. God is love. With the God who wrote 
the whole New Testament. There's not this this constant fight between the judge, the justice of God and the love of God. That he's not divided in his attributes, but they are complementary. That God is love and God is just, and those can coexist. And we, as God's people, can experience both. That we can see the justice of God. That the wicked shall be punished. That things will not go unspoken for. While recognizing that in his love he has passed over our former sins. And made us to be his own. Not because of our own merit, not because of our own worth, but solely because of his love. Jonah chapter 1, <clears throat> we're told that in verse 17, The Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Backing up two verses, two verse 15, And so they, the sailors on the ship, took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. Beginning of chapter 2. And then Jonah cried, <clears throat> I'm sorry, Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hadst cast me into the deep. In chapter 1, we're told that it was the sailors who threw him, threw him over the ship. But in chapter 2, when Jonah prays to God, he says that it was God who cast him down. And so as we, as we think through this idea of, of God's sovereignty and human affairs, there, is, there are layers, I think. We could, I, we could see this as being layers, that while on the surface, it is the men who threw Jonah overboard, but God willed it. In some way, God was using them for a purpose. And so with Jonah, we see that we see the two working together. Maybe not knowingly. I don't think the pagan sailors knew that God willed for Jonah to go overboard. I don't think they had that information. But looking back... Jonah could say that that was God's will. In the moment, he may not have seen it. But looking back on it, it was God's will. This, just like we see in Genesis 50-20, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. And so there's not the, I don't think there's this battle between my will and God's will but rather there is a conforming of my desires to his. And lastly, let's, let's go to Romans 9. And then we'll go back to Job. Romans 9. <clears throat> Romans 9, beginning in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? That, that's, that's a valid question. One of the things that is 
interesting to me about Romans is that Paul seems to anticipate questions that he's going to get for some of the things that he is writing. And so in verse 13, he quotes that verse in Malachi, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And so then he says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? If God seems to arbitrarily choose Jacob over Esau, is there unrighteousness with God? Paul says, no. He says, God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture says unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power to thee, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. <clears throat> and that plays directly into this idea of the deceived and the deceiver also being held within God's sovereignty. Is there some that he softens? And there are some that he hardens. Just as he hardened Pharaoh, but he has softened others throughout history. And not just the Jews. Look at Rahab. Look at all kinds of people in the Old Testament. It's not just Israel that God is exercising sovereignty over. But if you read the genealogy of Jesus, there are some pretty pagan people in there. You see God bringing righteousness out of wicked places. Because he softens whom he will and hardens whom he will. And another question anticipated by Paul. Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? But, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the, the potter power over the clay? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, and another unto dishonor. And hence we come full circle to this text in Job. That God is the potter. It says in Isaiah that... Yet, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter, and we are all the work of your hands. <clears throat> and so we have this picture of God as potter, working at the wheel, molding this piece of clay. It is entirely within his sovereignty. He is, he is molding people. He is shaping people. He doesn't make mistakes. And the hard thing here is verse 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had alone prepared unto glory? Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles.
and so with Job. We have a view of God's sovereignty that is all-inclusive. It's not just that God is sovereign over giving Job riches, of giving him a family and livestock and wealth, but it is the same sovereignty that took it, the same sovereignty through which it was all lost through which fire from heaven came and consumed his material wealth, to which robbers came, to which a great wind came and knocked on his house. And while Satan was actively involved there, it was God who decreed it. It was God who said, He is within your power. Do not kill him. God told him what to do, and how far he could go. And so while we have this, this picture behind the curtain of Satan doing these things, we're also told countless times throughout the book of Job that ultimately it was God. And so in this text in Job 12, we are presented with a picture of God's wisdom and his strength and his sovereignty. That this sovereign God is wise and powerful. That is the, pre the preface here. And before he gets into, he breaketh down and it cannot be built again, he says that God, he reasserts that God is wise and strong. That the things God does that do not make sense to us when God withholds the waters so that the land dries up, when he wills the waters to overturn the earth, with him is strength and wisdom. That this is not a flippant decision. <clears throat> this is not a God who is sitting up in heaven gleefully throwing lightning at people. But this is a God who does these things from a place of wisdom and ability. He says this several times. With him is wisdom and strength. With him is strength and wisdom. And the deceived and the deceiver are his. That just as he is sovereign over the earth and what happens on the earth, he is sovereign over the communication of truth, the dispersal of truth. That there are some that God has withheld wisdom from. Just as we've seen in previous chapters, that it is God who makes men wise. As it says in James, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, and he will give it. But there are times where God does not give it. There are some to whom God endures their blindness. Those vessels of wrath that Paul talks about, that he endureth with much long-suffering. God is abundantly patient with the deceived and the deceiver who are held within the same sovereignty as Job. And so how do we think about that? How do, how do we how do we put legs on that? What, what does that mean for us now? What does it mean for Job? What does it mean for us? Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> In verse 26. 
see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things in the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. Why? So that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And that word glorieth, um, to be painfully literal, it means shine. <clears throat> and I think the King James rendering as glory, as a verb, makes the most sense. Let the one that shines his light shine the light of God. Let him that glorieth glory in the Lord. If anyone boasts, boasts in this, that they know and understand me, says the Lord in Isaiah. <clears throat> so Paul says, in light of this idea of calling, of God choosing some and not others, whether you want to call it election or predestination, or if you want to avoid the T-I-O-N words altogether. However, we consider this principle that God softens some and hardens others that he endureth the deceived for the same sovereignty with which he upholds the wise when we consider this calling Paul tells us we are not the mighty we are not the wise we are not the impressive quite the contrary actually God has chosen the unimpressive, the unworthy, the weak, the feeble, the foolish. For what purpose? To set his power against the things this world holds as wise. And so he takes the foolish things of the world <coughs> and he displays his goodness through us. It says later in his letter to Corinth that he placed the, the treasures of the gospel in clay pots. Not in a gold-lined treasure chest, not in anything lined with satin, but in, but in a clay pot. Essentially, he took the gospel and stuck it in a styrofoam cup. That's us. <clears throat> we are not many mighty not many wise, not many impressive. But rather we're the discarded ones that God has poured his love upon. To quote Jeremiah once again, he hath loved us with an everlasting love. And that's not because we have anything we bring to the table, quite the opposite. That God has chosen us over others, not because of our merit, not because we deserved it, but simply because we didn't. 
and because God was rich in mercy to do so. And so, for our sake, it says that he endures the deceiver. He endures the vessels of wrath. That he would make known to those his power and his glory through us, the clay pots that have been made to be vessels of honor. And so as we conclude this section <coughs> in the book of Job, I, I want to direct our attention briefly to this passage in the book of Jude. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. That just as he led an entire people out of Egypt, only some entered the promised land. Those that did not believe were destroyed. They died in the wilderness. The God kept for himself a very small portion who entered the promised land, who entered his promised rest. And likewise, the same position is shown to us. <clears throat> that God will lead us out of Egypt. He will lead us into a promised rest that is far or better, abundantly greater, than the land of Canaan. There is still a rest to be entered into for those who believe. And we who believe in Jesus enter into that perfect rest that is provided by God. And so, I encourage you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a perfect and sufficient Savior, To some of you, he may be rendered as dead. Jesus, Jesus died. He doesn't exist to me. He's dead to me. And I offer him to you as a risen Christ. As a whole Christ. And if you try him, if you test him, you will find him to be sufficient. As a Savior, as Lord, and as God. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless. Matthew 4.4 4.